Hello everyone and welcome. You are currently listening to the first episode of a brand new podcast that I like to call Crime Localized. Before we begin, I would like to take this opportunity to welcome you and thank you so much for joining in. My name is Matthew Markham, and I'll be your host. Together, we'll explore the crimes of residents that reside in small communities just like the one you might be listening from at this very moment. My goal with this series will be to showcase lesser-known true crime stories that I feel are still both impactful and engaging, despite not being as mainstream as some of the other stories that you've heard. While I won't guarantee that you've never heard them before, I will refrain from presenting you with the likes of John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer, as their stories and others like them have been told time and time again. And besides, if you're like me, I'm sure you already know more than a few excellent podcasts to go to for stories like that. Those podcasts that are so very iconic in the true crime community are what inspired me to put the time and effort into creating my own. However, with introductions out of the way and taking on a slightly more serious tone, I would like to issue you a warning. The stories presented to you here may not be pleasant, as they cover topics that many people will find uncomfortable. There will be discussions of murder, sexual assault, drug abuse, and much, much more. And that's really only in the first episode. So going forward, you should expect all that, and probably much, much worse, as we explore how truly depraved some people can allow themselves to become. So, to sum all of that up, listener discretion is definitely advised. Finally, without further ado, I present to you the first episode of Crime Localized. Part 1 a dark night in White Marsh. On a cool evening just before midnight, on Sunday, November 1st, 1987, Keith Douglas Garvin parked his motorcycle outside his home at Naval Station Norfolk in Norfolk, Virginia. Keith had just ridden over 250 miles south along Interstate 95 after spending the weekend with his new wife, Dawn Marie Garvin, at their apartment home in White Marsh, Maryland. With his arms and legs aching from the long ride, Keith kicked off his shoes and picked up his phone. He planned to let Dawn know that he had arrived safely and to wish her a good night before heading to bed himself. He dialed the buttons that he knew by heart and listened as the line rang with no answer before cutting sharply to her pre-recorded answering machine message. Keith was instantly uneasy by the fact that Dawn had not answered. It was unlike her to let any calls go to voicemail when she was home to answer them, and Dawn had made no mention to Keith of any plans to leave that evening. While it was possible that Dawn had fallen asleep waiting for Keith's call, he found it extremely unlikely that she would have slept through the loud handset that rests just beside her head on the bed's nightstand. He continued to try her number one call directly after another, and after several minutes of growing increasingly worried, he instead tried the number of Don's father, Frederick Joseph Romano. After only a few rings, Don's father picked up and Keith explained the situation to him. He agreed that something definitely wasn't right and it was decided that Frederick would drive to Don's apartment 
to check on her if nothing else than to give them both peace of mind to sleep that night. Frederick hung up and Keith was left waiting in eerie silence. He paced the floors, trying to remain hopeful, but deep down, he was finding it very difficult. All that was left for him to do now was wait. Back in White Marsh, Frederick pulled into Dawn's apartment complex and stepped out into the night air. He climbed the stairs to his daughter's third-story apartment home, but immediately was given pause. The front door was ajar. A thin strip of light spilled from the small crack between the door and the door frame from within. Frederick did not hesitate. He pushed the door open, found that all the lights in the home were on, and the television was absolutely blaring. On the floor in front of him lay several articles of Dawn's clothing strewn about an otherwise tidy living room. Seeing no signs of her, he rushed to the master bedroom, and inside, he found what can only be described as a father's worst nightmare. His daughter was slumped on her bed. She was naked and unresponsive. He rushed to her, and seeing that she was not breathing, began to perform CPR frantically. Her body was cold and the life had gone from her eyes. Large amounts of blood covered the bed as well as her face and body. Frederick backed away and clawed for the nearby phone on her nightstand. Paramedics would arrive shortly after and attempt to revive Dawn, but it was just simply too late. Dawn Marie Garvin, age 20, was pronounced dead at the scene. At a little after 2 a.m., Detective James Reuter and a small team of investigators arrived at the scene. Their careful analysis of the crime scene began inside the bedroom, where Dawn's body lie naked atop blood-stained white sheets. On the side of her head, they found two gunshot wounds, one in the right ear and one on her forehead. Two 25 caliber bullet casings were discovered on the bed beside her, one of them lay atop a bloody, crumpled shirt that appeared to have been used as a makeshift silencer. She had been sexually assaulted, and a glass bottle was left sticking out of her vagina. Perhaps the most haunting piece of information released was that a small stuffed bear had been discovered underneath Dawn's right arm. Police believe that she had been clutching it during the duration of her attack. On the floor of the living room, investigators found a pair of pants, tennis shoes, a sweater, and a bra that had not been unhooked, but instead ripped away. All these pieces of clothing were scattered around what was otherwise a seemingly normal living room, creating a chilling juxtaposition. Near the television, a small piece of chipped hard rubber was discovered and bagged for evidence. Because the front door showed no signs of forced entry, and the windows were all locked and inaccessible due to being multiple stories off the ground, police believed that Dawn had either intentionally or unintentionally allowed the perpetrator inside herself. Outside of the apartment, the flashing blue lights of police cruisers cast an ominous glow across the entire neighborhood. Many residents peered silently through cracked blinds while others came forward to give witness statements. One by one, police began speaking with potential witnesses and taking detailed notes of even the most innocuous details. 
Out of all the people interviewed, no one had seen anyone coming or going from Don's apartment that evening. They had not seen any strange cars or heard any gunshots or even sounds of a struggle. There was, however, one commonality amongst many of the reports that evening. Several of Don's neighbors had reported speaking to a strange and intoxicated man who had been knocking on doors the previous evening. To some, he had claimed to be a Baltimore County police officer, to others, a stranded motorist needing assistance. To some, he even claimed to be a physician in urgent need of a ride to the local hospital to perform emergency surgery. Many different stories had been offered, but the one thing that they all had in common was someone had been trying desperately to gain access to homes in the area. As the sun began to rise, light creeped slowly into Dawn's apartment. Her body was removed, evidence was loaded, and witness statements were finalized. Finally, the door to Dawn's apartment was sealed and crime tape was placed across the doorway with a note forbidding anyone to enter. Unsurprisingly, everyone at the scene that night had been shaken to their core. There would be little sleep achieved by anyone in the remaining early hours as their small community suddenly felt much larger and terribly unfamiliar. The perpetrator could have been anyone and anywhere. Was it someone from out of town merely passing through, or was it possible that they were just a few doors down, close enough to hear the police sirens from their own living room? In this case, it was the latter. Part 2. A Similar Set of Circumstances In the weeks following the murder of Don Garvin, police began investigating the lives of her friends and family. They learned that Don's brother, Frederick Anthony Romano, had been the last person to see her alive at around 8.30pm on the evening of November 1st. He had stopped by her apartment to pick up the keys to Keith's car to have it serviced. Her brother told police that he only stayed for about five minutes, and when he left, Dawn had been preparing to walk her dog, Pepper. Using Dawn's estimated time of death, police were able to rule him out as a suspect, as well as other members of her immediate family who all had solid alibis. With so few suspects and no apparent motive, police were having a difficult time identifying any potential suspects. As I said earlier, no one had seen anyone coming or going from Don's apartment, but police were still curious about the man who had been trying to talk his way into multiple homes. Police wondered if perhaps the man had returned to the neighborhood the following night, and if Don had believed his story. Had she allowed him access to her home? It would explain why there were no signs of forced entry or a struggle until well within inside the home. Based on descriptions given to police, investigators began to narrow their search. The man had been described as white and in his mid to late 20s. He was approximately 5 foot 9 or 5 foot 10, with curly dark hair and a clean shaven round face. It wasn't much to go on, but it certainly was a start. On the morning of November 16th, approximately two weeks after the murder of Don Garvin, Sergeant Sidney Branham of the Baltimore County Police Department received a troubling call over his police radio. 
Around 9 a.m. that morning, local dispatch had received a call stating that a crime scene had been discovered in connection to an active missing persons case that had been filed the prior day. The missing person in question was a woman named Patricia Hurt. Sergeant Branham was dispatched to 62 Stillwood Circle, where he was greeted by four individuals who had come to the home in search of the missing Patricia Hurt. One of those individuals was Patricia's sister, Danielle Jones. Danielle informed him that she believed her sister was in immediate danger based on what she had seen inside the home. She told Sergeant Branham that when she arrived, she had found that the front door was open and upon entering had found a large amount of blood on the floor near the entrance. Sergeant Branham drew his weapon and entered the home. As he walked through the doorway, he saw the pool of blood that Danielle had described, as well as even more blood on the doorframe. He made his way into the living room where he found several articles of women's clothing strewn about that were also covered in blood. After clearing the rest of the home to ensure that Patricia Hurt was not still inside, Sergeant Branham exited and ordered another officer to stand guard outside until a warrant could be obtained. Danielle told Sergeant Brenham that this was the home of her other sister and husband, Phyllis and Stephen Oaken. Patricia had come over to leave a camera with Stephen for Patricia, who was currently out of town on business. No one had seen or spoken to her since. The home's occupant, Stephen Oaken, was also nowhere to be found. At around this time, less than a mile away, Detective Charles Naylor was arriving at the scene of where a body had just been discovered. The body belonged to a white woman in her mid-40s and was lying face down in a ditch off the side of White Marsh Boulevard. The woman had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot in the head at close range. It didn't take long for investigators to make the connection, and soon Detective Naylor was sent to meet Sergeant Branham outside the home on 62 Stillwood Circle. Together, they prepared an application for a search and seizure warrant, which was quickly delivered to and signed by Judge A. Gordon Boone Jr. With the proper paperwork in hand, police once again entered the home and began an exhaustive search. On top of the evidence we've already discussed, police discovered bloody towels in the kitchen trash can as well as a 25 caliber pistol in the drawer of the master bedroom. The similarities between Don Garvin and Patricia Hurt were immediately apparent to investigators. Both women had been sexually assaulted and executed with a pistol pressed against their temple. Add to that the close proximity of both crime scenes and the police were certain that they were connected. Stephen Oaken immediately became investigators' prime suspect. His car was still parked outside his home, but unfortunately, he was nowhere to be found. A search was already in the works, but before it could even really begin, it was over. Almost 600 miles away in Freeport, Maine, Stephen Oaken sat uncomfortably in a jail cell. He was charged with murder. However, it was not the murder of Don Garvin or Patricia Hurt, as Oaken's spree had not ended with them. It was instead for the murder of another young woman who had met a similar grisly fate. Part 3 A Road Trip to Nowhere 
The descriptions of Stephen Oaken that were given to police on the night of Don Garvin's murder were fairly accurate. He was 25 years old and 5 foot 10 inches tall with dark brown hair. His wide shoulders drooped beside him as he shivered from drug and alcohol withdrawals. 36 hours earlier, Stephen Oaken had been sitting at home waiting for his wife's sister, Patricia Hurt. When Patricia arrived, Stephen ambushed her. He ripped off her clothes and sexually assaulted her on the floor of his own home before strangling her and eventually shooting her in the head. Panicked by what he had done, Stephen loaded Patricia Hurt's body into the trunk of her own white 1979 Ford Mustang. He backed out of his driveway and started down White Marsh Boulevard. A couple minutes later, he pulled off to the side of the road, popped the trunk, and threw her body into the ditch that she would later be found in. With no one to turn to, Stephen fled the state. He planned to hide out in an area near the Canadian border that he had been known to vacation at. As he drove along the highway, the weight of what he had done still had not truly settled over him. In one long 10-hour trip, Stephen drove Patricia's car north through Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire before finally arriving in Maine. Exhausted and barely able to stay upright, Stephen pulled his car over to the Coachman Motor Inn in Kittery, Maine. He walked into the lobby and was greeted by the hotel's manager, Diana Ott. Diana took down the details of Stephen's vehicle, the white Ford Mustang, and handed in the paperwork for his room. Stephen filled it out using his real name and told Diana that he only wished to pay for a single night. He handed her his visa card and she gave him the key to room 48. She charged his card, but before giving it back to him became distracted when the phone rang. After answering the call, Diana realized that Stephen had already left to go to his room. She had not had the chance to give him his card, and she currently held it in her hand. Diana called room 48, and an exhausted Stephen answered the phone. She told him what had happened, and said that he could come down later to receive his card at his own convenience. At 2.30pm, Diana's shift ended, and Lori Ward arrived to take her place at the front counter. Diana told Lori that the guest in room 48 would be coming by to pick up his visa card sometime that afternoon and left. She would be the last person to see Lori alive. Stephen Oaken woke up in a cold sweat. The bottle of vodka sat on the nightstand beside him and he reached for it. While downing large gulps of the clear liquid, he saw flashes of what he had done in his home back in Maryland. He drank until those thoughts disappeared. Feeling hungry and remembering that the motel clerk had his visa card, he stumbled his way to the front counter. As he approached, he noticed that Diana was no longer working and a new girl had taken her place. Wicked thoughts entered Stephen's head, and he doubled back to his room where he retrieved a pistol and a surgeon's smock. Stephen returned to the counter, where Lori Ward greeted him with a smile. He told her that he was there to retrieve his debit card, and Lori went to retrieve it. When she returned, Stephen ambushed her, knocking her unconscious. He drug her body into the utility room that was located behind the front counter, and proceeded to rape and torture her. 
When he was finished, Stephen covered himself with a surgeon's smock and pressed the pistol to Lori's head. He pulled the trigger, killing Lori the same way he had done to Don Garvin and Patricia Hurt. Stephen left Lori's body in that utility room and returned to the front counter. He stole $300 from the cash register before returning to room 48, where he loaded his belongings into Patricia Hurt's Mustang and left. At around 6 p.m., the motel manager, Diana, called the front desk to check on Lori. She received no answer. After trying multiple times, Diana instead called the motel's maintenance man, hoping that he would be able to swing by to check on her. He agreed, and 10 minutes later, the maintenance man called back, and he was frantic. He informed Diana that he had just discovered Lori's body stuffed in the utility closet, and Diana hung up the phone, jumping in her car and flying back to the motel where the police had already arrived. Police began their investigation by documenting the crime scene. They knocked on the doors of every room at the Coachman Motor Inn, but when they reached room 48, they received no response. They set up a perimeter around the motel, and an officer stayed overnight to document every car coming and going from the motel. However, Stephen Oaken would not be seen, as he had already left town and would not return. The next morning, at around 7.30 a.m., police requested to search the guest rooms which were marked as empty. Because Stephen had only paid for one night's stay, and his car was not in the parking lot, Diana assumed that Stephen had already left, and added room 48 to the list of rooms to be searched. When police opened the door to Stephen Oaken's room, they found exactly what they'd been searching for. Stephen's nearly empty bottle of vodka lay in the floor beside his bed, and along with it, a small piece of rope, a half gallon of orange juice, a pair of socks, and a bloodstained shirt were all that were left behind. In the bathroom, blood was found smeared on the counter where Stephen had quickly tried to clean himself up before leaving. When police returned to speak with Diane, she was horrified to learn that Oaken was the one who had murdered Lori. She turned over all the information she had on him, including his name, date of birth, license plate number, and a description of the vehicle he had been driving. Using teletype, police ran the plate number and discovered that the white Mustang had been involved in a separate homicide in the state of Maryland. They issued an APB for the entire state, and contacted the media to assist in apprehending Stephen Ogan. After leaving the Coachman Inn at around 6.30 p.m., an intoxicated Stephen Ogan had driven himself 65 miles north to the town of Freeport, Maine. At just before 8 p.m., he pulled into the Freeport Inn. Stephen stumbled out of his car and into the hotel lobby. He was greeted by the hotel's clerk, Catherine Jones. Using the cash he had stolen from the register at the Coachman Motor Inn, Stephen paid for a single night's stay and was given the key to room 250. Oaken thanked Catherine with a smile and turned to leave. As he walked away, Catherine noticed a smear of blood on the back of Stephen's neck. She called out to him and asked if he was alright. Stephen rubbed at the dried blood with his hand and chuckled. I'm fine, he told her, through a smile, and exited the lobby. Oaken parked the Mustang and proceeded up the stairs to room 250. 
He unlocked the door and immediately fell into bed. At around 10.30 a.m. the next morning on November 17th, Stephen returned to the counter to pay for an additional night. The hotel's manager noticed that Stephen fit the description that had been given over the radio of a man wanted in connection to a triple homicide. After Stephen returned to his room, the manager phoned the local police to inform them of where he was staying. Whatever Stephen Oaken's plans were from that point on are unknown, because shortly after, more than 20 officers in tactical vehicles arrived and surrounded room 250 where Stephen Oaken was currently staying. With guns drawn, they ordered him to exit his room with his hands up. Stephen initially resisted, but after speaking with negotiators and realizing that there was no way out, he surrendered. Stephen Oaken's murder spree had finally come to an end. Part 4 A Brief History of Stephen Oaken Over the past few chapters, I've told you about Stephen Oaken's three-week murder spree that left three women dead and a community shaken to its core. But now I'd like to take a moment to explore more about Stephen Oaken himself. Stephen was a Maryland native. He was raised by his parents, David and Davida Oaken, who owned and ran a local pharmacy. People in town trusted and respected the Okens as they would any hometown doctor, but it was also much more than that. The Jewish community was thriving in Baltimore, and Okens' family were prominent members in that community. They were active in many social functions and never missed a Saturday sermon. The Okens were viewed as the ideal Jewish family. From an early age, Stephen was well-liked by both his peers and teachers. He maintained good grades, had plenty of friends, and was a member of social clubs at his school, and was even a promising athlete. In the evenings after school, he would help his mother and father in their pharmacy. Everything was looking good for Stephen. He seemingly had it all. With such a strong foundation and the never-waning support of his family, Stephen seemed destined to become a pillar in the community, just like his parents. However, as Stephen reached his high school years, he discovered something about himself that he would struggle with for the rest of his life. Stephen Oaken was adopted. While it's not uncommon for kids to struggle with the revelation of their adoption, Stephen took it especially hard. He felt like an imposter in his own skin, like he had just learned a terrible secret that he should be shunned for. For him, it didn't just bring up questions about his actual parentage, but also about what it meant for him as a Jew. If he wasn't Jewish by blood, then did he even belong at his religious school or within the temple where he had spent so much time? At this point in his life, Stephen began to rebel. He stayed out later than normal, went to parties, began missing classes, and even skipping the religious events that he had once looked forward to. It was around this time that he began experimenting with drugs, he tried marijuana at first, but when that stopped dulling the pain, he began stealing prescription pain pills from behind the counter of his family's pharmacy. Internally, Stephen felt like his life was coming apart at the seams, and yet somehow, despite his new reckless lifestyle and drug dependencies, Stephen's academic career and social life were flourishing. His grades had barely taken a hit, and he was the star of the lacrosse team. 
He even found time to land a girlfriend, his soon-to-be wife, Phyllis Hurt. Quote, Lots of kids have tendencies where they might take the wrong road, but Stephen wasn't one of them. Lincoln Bogart, Oaken's varsity lacrosse coach, once told a reporter at the Jewish Times, quote, There was nothing abnormal about him. As far as a sex maniac killer, I never saw it. He was a nice guy, and he got all A's in my classes. Stephen's mother, Davida, said of her son, quote, He had a religious moral upbringing. He was a wonderful little boy, a happy-go-lucky child, carefree, just perfect, very obedient. He's the sunshine of my life. He was in the Boy Scouts, a little leaguer, you know. It was just luck of the draw. Something went wrong, somewhere. His father David was a bit more realistic about his son's struggles, saying, quote, He was always a little more mischievous than most. He always wanted to go a little further than he should. He could push the envelope a little. He was more aggressive, more willing to walk the line between right and wrong, what he should and shouldn't do. He always thought he could do a little more, stay out a little later. After high school, Stephen went on to enroll at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. These years in Stephen's life seem mostly uneventful. Despite his ongoing struggle with drug dependencies, Stephen continued to excel academically. Soon after graduating, he married his longtime high school sweetheart, and by 25 was co-owner of his family's pharmacy. For anyone looking in, Stephen Oaken had a pretty good life. He had a promising career with a family business to inherit, and his wife and he were looking forward to having children. All seemed to be going well for him. However, at some point, Stephen's life took a tragically dark turn. I'm not sure if perhaps the monotony of his own life was already beginning to annoy him, or if maybe his marriage to Phyllis wasn't the best fit. But whatever reason, Stephen began doubling down on his abusive behavior. He began drinking excessively every day while still swiping pain pills at any opportunity. He took Xanax, Halcyon, cocaine, and any other substance he could get his hands on. By this point, his father had noticed that Stephen had gone from a little mischievous, as he had put it, to a full-blown alcoholic that was struggling to stay upright. The customers were noticing as well, and the pharmacy's sales were suffering because of it. Stephen's father gave him an ultimatum, get clean or get out. Stephen would check himself into rehab, and for a while things seemed to get better, but tragically, he would relapse, and this time, it would turn deadly. Part 5. Stephen Oaken's Day in Court and the Fight for the Death Penalty On November 17, 1987, 25-year-old Stephen Oaken was arrested in Freeport, Maine for the murder of Lori Ward. Since Stephen had been arrested at the time and was in custody in the state of Maine, the first case against him would be for the murder of Lori. The trial would begin over a year later in 1989. In addition to murder, Stephen Oaken was also charged with robbery involving a firearm and the theft resulting from the stolen cash from the cash register of the Coachman Inn. Oaken's attorney attempted to have the evidence found inside room 48 of the Coachman Inn thrown out. 
He argued that the search and seizure performed inside Oaken's room violated Oaken's Fourth Amendment right because Oaken himself had never officially checked out. He argued that because the room was still legally Oaken's private residence until he had officially checked out, any evidence collected was not admissible in court. However, the prosecution pointed out that Oaken had left the room only five and a half hours after checking in, and that he had left no luggage or other personal effects inside the room that would be consistent with somebody who planned to return. Oaken's attorney asserted that the bloody shirt and drinks left behind were enough to prove that Oaken had not abandoned his hotel room. He pointed out the fact that Oaken had not turned in his key to the room, and that Oaken himself had even testified that he planned to return. In the end, however, the evidence was allowed to proceed, and it was damning. The blood found in the bathroom of the coachman belonged to Lori Ward. The gun used in her execution was found inside Patricia's Ford Mustang, which was in Stephen's possession. Stephen Oaken testified that he had a terrible drug problem, and he could not remember anything about the night of the murder. He claimed to be seeing a psychiatrist and seeking help for his addictions, but in the end, his defense failed. Ogan was found guilty on all counts. On July 23, 1989, Ogan was sentenced to 25 years for robbery, 5 years for theft, and life without parole for the murder of Lori Ward. While this may seem like a happy ending, or at least as happy as one could hope for, Ogan's days in court were far from finished. Before he could begin spending the rest of his days in an orange jumpsuit and eating bland prison food, he had to answer for the murder of Don Garvin and Patricia Hurt. For that, Oaken was returned to Maryland, where he and his attorneys began to plan his defense. Even though Oaken was already facing life in prison in the state of Maine, Maryland had recently reinstated the death penalty, and Oaken and his family were desperate to avoid it. The first case brought against him was for the murder of Don Garvin. The evidence presented inside the Maryland courtroom was overwhelming. Several witnesses testified that Oaken was in fact the man who had been seen attempting to gain access to residents in the vicinity of Don Garvin's apartment. The 25 caliber pistol found in the nightstand of Oaken's bedroom was shown to be the one used to execute Don Garvin. The small piece of rubber found inside the living room of Don's apartment belonged to the shoe that Oaken had been wearing during his arrest in Maine. All the evidence and testimony left little doubt in the jury's mind. On the 25th of January 1991, Stephen Oaken was found guilty of first-degree murder, multiple sexual offenses and weapons charges, burglary, robbery, and theft. Quote, You are a very evil and dangerous man, declared Judge James T. Smith Jr. at Oaken's sentencing. He then delivered the exact sentence that the prosecution had been hoping for. Stephen Oaken was sentenced to death. The trial for Patricia Hurt followed immediately after Don Garvin, and it was swift. The evidence was laid out neatly to the jury. Patricia Hurt had been sexually assaulted and murdered using a 25 caliber pistol inside Stephen Oaken's home. Patricia Hurt's Ford Mustang had been used to move her body from Stephen Oaken's home to the ditch where it would eventually be found. Stephen Oaken was found in possession of Patricia Hurt's stolen vehicle, and the 25 caliber pistol that was used in her murder was found in the trunk of her car. The defense made little effort to deny it. Instead, the defense continued to assert that Stephen Oaken had no memory of Patricia Hurt's murder. 
They claimed that he could not be held responsible due to a temporary break from reality caused by a lifetime of drug and alcohol abuse. The prosecution responded by presenting a note that had been found inside Stephen Oaken's home during its initial search. The note detailed a list of items to be purchased. It included gauze pads, chloroform, a sock and adhesive tape to be used as a gag, surgical gloves, a camera and film, pantyhose to cover his face, dildos, vibrators, and other miscellaneous items. The prosecution asserted that it simply was not possible for someone to plan a crime so meticulously while also suffering a mental break. The jury agreed, and on April 23, 1991, Stephen Oaken received a life sentence for the murder of his sister-in-law, Patricia Hurt. As with any death penalty verdict, the years to follow would be filled with many appeals for Stephen Oaken's life. However, Oaken's case was soon thrust into the national spotlight as it was a central talking point around Maryland's changing death penalty laws. For more than a decade, both proponents and critics each used Oaken's case to support their own arguments, either for or against the death penalty. A discussion about the death penalty is very difficult to have. There is a time and a place to have that talk, however I don't believe that this podcast is the place to have it. I would prefer that this episode stay focused on the crimes of Stephen Oaken and not become bogged down by something so complicated and divisive. So instead of presenting you with my own half-baked understanding of the arguments about the death penalty, I'll instead focus on direct quotes from the families involved in the case. On one side, you have the families of the victims. Dawn's brother, Frederick Anthony Romano, said, quote, Stephen Oaken thought he was above God and he destroyed the lives of so many people. People who do that, he can't be helped. He raped my sister in a horrible manner, and he got a kick out of it. And then he shot her twice in the head and killed her. That's how my father found her. Eventually, he's going to pay for what he did. He needs to accept his judgment and die for his crimes. He should suffer. Let Stephen Oaken know that I'm not going anywhere until he's dead. I won't rest. Lori Ward's older sister said, quote, The execution would help to maintain my faith in our judicial system. My sister was ripped away from our family, and we can't get her back. At the very least, this evil person won't be walking among us. Edward Strong, the police chief of Kittery, Maine, had testified in both Don Garvin's and Lori Ward's trial. He was the one who found the bloody materials and other evidence in the Coachman Motor Inn that linked the three murders together. He said on the record, quote, I have no doubt that he would have murdered again if we hadn't caught him. I've never in my law enforcement career seen a person who deserves the death penalty more than this individual. I'm glad that they have the death penalty here in Maryland. On the other side of the equation sit Stephen's parents. They feel that despite what their son has done, he still did not deserve to be put to death. Oaken's parents spoke to the reporter in an attempt to gain public sympathy. Quote, Our life is a living hell, as far as a constant worry about what will happen to him, his mother said. It's like having a tremendous veil over your life. Not a day goes by when you don't think about him and pray that he's going to live. Stephen's father, David, remarked, It's a consequence of his actions. 
bear the consequences that he has to live with. I just wish that some people could understand that life in prison, particularly the way he is imprisoned, is a terrible punishment. Life in prison can be as severe as the death penalty. His mother added, The death penalty doesn't solve anything. It doesn't prevent murders or save money. It's all about retribution. Why must another family suffer? We're victims too. Why do my grandchildren and children have to suffer murder from the state? Living in the rat hole Stephen lives in is punishment enough for any human being. We haven't touched him in five or six years. Before I could hold his hand, I could kiss him, but life just becomes more difficult. You do what you have to do. It's better than the alternative. He makes me feel good and I adore him. At least I know he's living. While it certainly doesn't compare to what the families of Stephen Oaken's victims have suffered, I can't help but agree with the Oakens that they have also suffered a great deal from their son's actions. In addition to seeing their son on trial and having to wait to see if his sentence would be overturned, the Oakens had also suffered socially. The news of Stephen's spree had made the Oakens outcast in their own community. They were no longer welcome at their temple, and their business was in financial ruin. From everything I could find, Stephen Oaken had been given every opportunity by his parents. He was adopted, but he was never treated differently because of it. Quote, We're not biological. There's a difference there that I can't understand. I guess you have to be the person who's adopted. I'd think about it and say to myself, Who cares? I've got two people here who love me, his father said. As Davida said earlier in our story, sometimes something just goes wrong. While we've heard from both sides of the argument, there's one person we still haven't heard from, and that's Stephen Oaken himself. As the time frame for appeals continued to narrow, Stephen Oaken finally agreed to speak to a reporter about his crimes. From behind a sheet of bulletproof glass within the Maryland Correctional Adjustment Center, Stephen Oaken smiled at a reporter for the Jewish Times. When asked about what caused his life to truly go off the rails, Stephen said, quote, I can't point to one thing that made this happen. I think I was trying to run from something. I don't know if run is even the right word. I just didn't want to deal with everything. He continued, I was depressed. I don't think I really appreciated what was happening. And instead of dealing with the problems that came up, I found a way to escape. Drugs were what I was all about. During his time in prison, Stephen had reaffirmed his faith and seemingly come to peace with his own adoption. He said, quote, Being adopted is hard, but I don't think it had anything to do with what happened. I think anyone who was adopted would have a little place in their heart and mind that asks, where did I come from? What's important is I have a family. They're always there for me. I can't begin to say how much I love them. When asked how he felt about his adoption and how it related to his faith, Stephen said, quote, I don't think that it makes any difference. I grew up Jewish and lived in a Jewish house. My Hebrew name is Simon Hirsch. I'm Jewish, period. Stephen even took the time to comment on how he perceived his own potential for violence. It had been over a decade since his sentencing, and he still continued to blame the drugs as the singular reason for his actions. Quote, I know how I was brought up, 
and the values of my parents that they instilled in me. But taking someone's life is just horrendous, he said. I've been a quiet, soft-spoken person all my life. Growing up, I didn't get into a lot of fights. I wasn't really confrontational. If I was in my right mind, this wouldn't have happened. I don't want that to sound like an excuse, but before this happened, I didn't ever have the desire to hurt anyone physically. People tell my parents it was completely out of character, and I agree with that. Regardless of how Stephen Oaken perceived his own nature, he was a violent person. Before committing the murders that would land him on death row, Stephen Oaken had physically assaulted and attempted to sexually assault a different hotel clerk in East Baltimore. He was fined, given one year's probation, and ordered to undergo alcohol and drug treatment. He would not get the chance to recover, however, because less than a month later, Stephen Oaken would take the life of Don Garvin. On June 15, 2004, two days before Oaken was scheduled to be executed, a U.S. District Attorney issued an indefinite stay which was upheld by a federal appellate court. However, eight hours later, the fight went as high as the Supreme Court, who ultimately vacated that ruling. On July 17, 2004, Governor Bob Elric issued a statement saying that his sympathies, quote, lie with the families of those involved in this heinous crime. The death sentence imposed on Mr. Oaken has been reviewed and affirmed by several courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States. With that declaration from the governor, as well as all possible appeals having been exhausted, there was nothing more to do but wait. That same day, at 9.18pm, 17 years after the deaths of Don Garvin, Patricia Hurt, and Lori Ward, Stephen Oaken was executed by means of lethal injection. Don's mother and father, as well as other family members, witnessed Oaken's execution firsthand, as a crowd of 60 people had shown up outside the prison in support. Don's brother, Frederick Anthony Romano, cheered along with other supporters as prison officials announced to the crowd that Stephen Oaken had been executed. Quote, This is justice for Pat, Don, and Lori. We're all feeling good. We're elated. It's time to move on. Oaken's not worth our time anymore. Justice has been served. Frederick Anthony Romano said this as he held the same stuffed bear that had been discovered under Dawn's body on the night of her attack. Quote, My family's been put through hell for 17 years, Dawn's mother said. Stephen Oaken has been brought to justice. The only problem is that Stephen Oaken died in peace, and my daughters didn't have that luxury like I saw him die tonight. Quote, I'm feeling great right now, Don's father said. I feel justice has finally been done, and I just want to say this. I cradled my daughter's body in my arms when I found her. I attempted to give her CPR. The way this guy died, he died too easy. He had no right to die in dignity. As the night grew later, crowds outside the prison began to dissipate. The families of the victims finally had the closure they'd been waiting so long for, and Stephen Oaken's story was finally over. Part 6 The Victims 
When engrossed in a true crime podcast, it's often easy to forget that the victims whose stories we're listening to were real people, and that the emotions that they and their families felt were also very, very real. The impact their deaths had are still being felt to this day by those who knew them. So before we end, I'd like to take a moment to pay respect to the victims by telling you a bit about them beyond the circumstances of their death. Who were Don Garvin, Patricia Hurt, and Lori Ward? Don Garvin was 20 years old at the time of her death. She had been working as a secretary for the military and was enrolled at Hartford Community College, where she was taking classes in accounting. She had recently applied for a job working in Baltimore's World Trade Center and felt optimistic about her chances. Months earlier in the summer, she had married her high school sweetheart Keith, and they were eager to start a family. She had also recently adopted a poodle named Pepper to keep her company on the nights when Keith would be away on base. Don's father once said that he knows Don would be living a truly great life if she were still around. Patricia Hurt was 43. She was a mother of two girls, Jessica and Monique, age 17 and 18 at the time of her death, and she was anticipating the arrival of twin grandchildren. She was an administrative secretary at John Hopkins Hospital, where her colleagues spoke highly of her. She loved to ski and often volunteered at the Special Olympics. Her grandchildren say that if she were alive today, they would all still be best friends and their ever-growing families would be whole. Lori Ward was 25 and living with her parents in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She was working part-time as a hotel clerk to pay for her classes at the University of New Hampshire. From a young age, she was devoted to animals and helping people understand the responsibilities that came along with pet ownership. She had decided that in the coming months she would resign from her position to focus on her classes where she hoped to become a veterinarian. She is honored today with a memorial fund in her name at the New Hampshire Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Crime Localized is an independent production written, researched, produced, and narrated by me, Matthew Markham. All the music used in this episode is royalty-free and available online. A lot of work has gone into this podcast and will continue to go into it as more episodes are released. So if you are able, please consider supporting the show directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash crime localized or by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the quickest ways for a new podcast to grow is by word of mouth. So if you know any other true crime fanatics, please feel free to pass this along to them. For updates on the show's schedule or to suggest a topic for a future episode, follow the show on Twitter at Crime Localized.